Yama, everyone, brothers and sisters, all. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Kirsty Parker and I am a guest curator for the Adelaide Festival of Ideas and I'll be chairing this session on Voice Treaty Truth. Um, so I am a Uellarai Yina from Black Soil Country in far northwestern New South Wales. I'm now living and working here on Ghana Yurta. I'm also a proud signatory to the Uluru Statement from the heart. And I do begin by sincerely acknowledging the Ghana custodians of this beautiful country, their elders past and present. And I acknowledge that their spiritual and cultural connection with this country and care for it remains as strong today as it ever was. Ghana Miena, Ghana Yata, Nadalu Tumbandi. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So we're here to talk about voice, treaty, truth, the rallying cry contained within the Uluru Statement and an invitation from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to the Australian people to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. The Uluru Statement was issued at the conclusion of the First Nations National Constitutional Convention um, on the 26th of May 2017 and the convention itself was the culmination of a series of regional dialogues uh, facilitated throughout the country by the Referendum Council. Since then, the Uluru Statement has gained um, traction and support within the Australian community, and it is wonderful to see such a big crowd here today, and also some major accolades. Earlier this year, the Uluru Statement was named the winner of the 2021 Sydney Peace Prize. Australia's... Thank you. <laughs> Australia's only international prize for peace, and the Sydney Peace Prize said the Uluru Statement from the heart was an historic offering of peace. For all of this, the real measure of the Uluru Statement would be in realisation of the aspirations contained within it. Now, we had hoped to have the glorious canvas that bears the Uluru Statement words with us today, but restrictions, uh, need to balance personal safety with our fervour festivals, and COVID sucks. <laughs> However, um, we did have some mini versions of the Uluru Statement as you are coming in, and I hope you great people are holding them up. That's wonderful. Um, and they are um, with us today, courtesy of Reconciliation South Australia, so thank you to RecSA. And I'm very pleased to introduce a stellar panel uh, comprising Professor Megan Davis, Sammy Wilson and Sally Scales. All were delegates and leaders at the Uluru Convention. We'd also planned to have um, another South Australian delegate to the convention, Aaron Hazelbane, joining us from Larrakia country in Darwin today. Um, but circumstances have conspired against us. In fact, the only flight that Aaron and his young family were able to get back today started about four minutes ago. So. Did I say that COVID sucks? So after I introduce our panellists, we're gonna play a video from um, the Uluru Statement website. You may have seen it, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's about six and a half minutes and I ask for your indulgence while we watch that. As an entree to our main feast, that is conversation with our wonderful panel and as much as time permits, questions from you, the audience. So, to our panel, and I can see um, both Megan and Sammy on the screen. I'm not sure if they can see you, but if everyone can give them a wave. On the off chance, there's a big flurry of hands. 
Um, it's so great to see you both. Um, so, Professor Megan Davis is a cobble cobble woman for the, from the Barangam nation of what is now known as Queensland. She's a constitutional lawyer. She's Pro Vice Chancellor Indigenous and Professor of Law at UNSW in Sydney, from where she joins us today on Gadigal Country. She's also an Acting Commissioner of the New South Wales Land and Environment Court and the Bell Naves Chair in Constitutional Law. She was a member of the Referendum Council and the Expert Panel on Recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People in the Constitution, an expert member of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues from 2011 to 2016, and earlier this week was elected Chair of the United Nations Human Rights Council's Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Professor Davis is also a very active and committed commissioner on the Australian Rugby League Commission, and like any good Queenslander, supports the North Queensland Cowboys and the Queensland Maroons. She tweets prolifically, if you want to follow her, <laughs> under the handle of M Davis Queenslander. Please uh, thank Megan for joining us. Now I'm turning to Sammy Wilson, who is a senior custodian of Uluru, the grandson of the late Mr Uluru and now head of the Uluru family. He lives at Murujulu, adjacent to Uluru, from where he joins us today, and has been the chairman of the Central Land Council since October 2019. He's also the former chair of the Uluru Katajuda National Park Board and championed the successful Ananu-driven campaign that in October 2019 saw Uluru closed to climbing. When I was researching Sammy's very important work, I came across a quote from him last year that I feel really centres the significance of the Uluru Statement in the context of the current COVID pandemic, and I'd like to read it to you. Sammy said, this virus is helping us all to think about what's really important. And now, more than ever, is the time to connect with and to understand and trust each other. The Uluru Statement is for all of us. Sammy will be speaking to us today in his Yunkanjara language and also English, and he is assisted by Cathy as an interpreter. So please welcome Sammy. And last but not least, this beautiful woman sitting next to me, and as you can see, we colour coordinated, so we were ready, wearing red, black, and yellow today. Um, Sally is a Pitanjara woman from Pipilajara in the far west of the Ananu Pitanjara Yunkanjara lands in remote South Australia. Don't be deceived by her youth and her youthful appearance, because she has been a powerhouse for the Ananu people for years. Until recently, she was the chair of the APY executive board, the youngest person ever elected to the council and only the second woman to hold the position of chair. She is a sought-after commentator and you may recognise her from appearances on um, ABC TV's Q&A program as well as, I think it was on One on One with... One plus one. One plus one <laughs> uh, with Barry Cassidy. Um, and since 2013, Sally has worked with the APY Art Centre Collective in cultural liaison, elder support, and as a spokesperson. 
Having picked up a paintbrush only at the end of last year, Sally is already a rising star in the Australian art world, sometimes painting together with her accomplished artist mum, Josephine Mick. Sally um, is also mum to the hugely charismatic Walter. Some of you may have met him. Unfortunately, he's not here today. Um, but Walter has accompanied Sally to more high-powered occasions than some of us have had hot dinners. <laughs> Sally is a lead member of the Uluru Statement Youth Working Group. So um, please also welcome Sally. So we're going to play now the video um, that I mentioned. Um, some, in fact, I think all of our panellists are featured in the video, and I understand that they'll be able to see it as we play it as well. So it'll remind them of their majesty when they were at the Uluru Convention and beyond. Thank you, if we can play the video. from the Uluru Convention is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are going to take control back of this recognition process. I think what we heard from all the dialogues was overwhelmingly universal in that people wanted the tools to make an actual difference to their lives on the ground. We distilled all of the information that the 13 dialogues gave us and came out with a model that involved treaty making, a voice to the parliament, and a truth commission. We cannot continue to go on anymore being voiceless and powerless in our own lands. So far, we don't have any say in any legislation, any policy at all. So from here, what we're saying to Australia is this relationship between us, this very poor relationship, full of rampant racism and what have you, has to stop. The country has to be mature and sophisticated enough to have an intelligent conversation so we can all move forward and solve this unfinished business between us all, because it's definitely time. People want to make sure the truth is never forgotten and that we as Australians, we can talk truthfully about the past. We should never let the past be a burden uh, upon us, but at the same time, um, it will always be a burden if we don't face up to it. And denial, denial is no solution to that burden. In fact, the, the weight of that burden increases the more determined we are to try and force a denial and a forgetfulness about it. So one of the really strong messages from all of the dialogues, but emphasised here this week is that the First Nations want our own people and the rest of Australia
to engage in a process of truth-telling, uh, a lot like other societies that have been racked by division and the wounds of the past. A lot of other societies have established truth-telling processes to lay the groundwork for a more united future. And this is what our people have done here this week. In my work um, as a United Nations expert, um, I've been able to look across you know, the 70 countries of the United Nations who have significant Indigenous populations and see that that kind of voice to the parliament, that kind of parliamentary institution is quite a conventional um, uh, way that member states accommodate Indigenous peoples within the state. So it's no surprise to me that that has come up as a significant legal reform option for communities who feel like they don't have any power and they don't have any voice. And what we did hear from the dialogues right around the country is a very strong sense of powerlessness and voicelessness. People feel they don't have community control anymore. They feel like their communities are run from Canberra. And I think that's a really important message for the Prime Minister and opposition leader to, to hear, um, that communities feel so profoundly unhappy with the way Aboriginal polities um, are, are, are situated and located within the life of the Australian state. There's heaps of overlap, heaps of common ground, heaps of common themes, and of course the consensus was around us calling for a voice to parliament, constitutionally mandated. Um, it is a substantial proposal. Um, it's a critically important proposal. And the message um, that came out of the dialogues was unanimous on this. And it was confirmed as the priority. But um, the hopes of our people are that it will be this voice that sets up the next stage of our movement towards agreement making under a Makarata commission. The old idea of a Makarata is more than 30 years old. Um, it's a well-established idea, a young name for people coming together after a disagreement. And um, so the concept of the Makarata has been uh, re-invoked in, in our struggle and, um, and where the, the Uluru statement says that one of the functions of the Voice to Parliament is to advocate with, uh, with government the establishment of a Makarata Commission to supervise agreement making between First Nations and governments. video is a wonderful encapsulation of not just what's um, the words that are in the Uluru Statement, obviously, also the people and the feeling that went around that. And I know that Sally and Sammy and Megan will share with me when I say the atmosphere on the floor of the convention when 
um, the statement was endorsed was absolutely electric and one of elation. So, I've got some questions and um, I'm doing it kind of organically, so <laughs> I will invite all of the panellists to answer the questions if they wish to. There's a couple that I'll direct um, to particular people. But I wanted to start um, with a question just to each of them. And we might start with um, Sammy. And this is really about what do you believe the Uluru Statement, if its aspirations, if what it asks for happens, will deliver for our people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also for the nation? Why does the Uluru Statement matter? Just before I start, I'd just like to um, acknowledge um, the traditional owners of um, Adelaide there, and um, ideally I'd be here with you, but I'm uh, using this um, mainstream, funny way, your way of uh, communicating about the so, you know, people have always had, uh, no matter how back in history we go, um, people have had knowledge and they've talked about and discussed their knowledge and with each other. Uh, so, even so today, we use new technology, but we're still able to communicate our knowledge and our thinking with each other. It just makes me think of uh, the good old kangaroo and uh, how you spear it with a spear. But in order to make a spear, you need the sinew from the kangaroo's leg. So how does that work? Do we get the kangaroo first and then make the spear, or do we make the spear first? Which comes first? So speaking of going hunting, um, that's one of our ideal ways to, to sit down and, and talk with each other and share stories and share knowledge and share thinking about what's happening. So we got hunting, catch the kangaroo and sit down together then round the fire. And we talk about things like exactly like this. What does the Uluru Statement mean? What is it? Thank you very much, yeah. Sammy. And I've got to say that having some tucker and being able to sit around together is a um, very nice way to do things. Thank you very much. I'm going to just ask Sally to answer the question. She has the advantage, of course, of understanding Yankandjara and English, <laughs> so um, she's had it in stereo, um, the beautiful words that Sammy shared with us. So, Sally. Um, so, for me, uh, the aspirations of Uluru is a combination of a lot of things. People think that that's 
um, and Megan can delve further into it, there's a lot more than just Uluru. You know, there's been so many petitions, um, so many statements being given to Parliament, given to, you know, ministers who love to cry over it when they leave, but not do anything about it. Um, I always call that hall in Canberra the dead hall of dead treaties. Um, that eats copyright, Sally Scales. Um, <laughs> the, the aspirations of Uluru getting, if it wasn't heard, I mean, for me, it's getting us to the table. You know, there is this whole thing, Aboriginal people are constantly, you know, given the blame for things not working out you know, by government, by states or whatever, the programs and procedures and policies that happen about us, but happen without us. And to be at the table to talk about our lives, you know, we need to acknowledge the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a low expectancy rate um, and, you know, life span. And so, you know, I'm 31. Does that mean that I've already lived half my life? And what does that mean for us? How do we change the lives of our kids so that they can have a better future? And it's also the aspirations of Uluru and the Uluru Statement. It was given to you. It was given to the Australian people. So it's about what do you want to do? What is, how is it inspiring you? And how do we, how can we truly come together to make a better Australia? Because it's not about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia and the non-Indigenous Australia and, and, you know, the Muslim Australia. It's about everyone's Australia. And we have to join together in recognising what that means and going through that process of saying, let's have our First Nations people at the table. Let's also hear about the truths of our country. Recognise that and reconcile that. There is so much hurt, but so many incredible conversations that you don't know, the history of Australia, we've only scratched away at the surface because the what has been taught to us is being, or shown um, to us is only the through a small lens. Imagine if it was a whole cinema that we could see of Australia's history. And I think that's what we okay. need to look at. Yeah. Thank you, Sally. And um, it's been said since the Uluru Statement um, was released that it's not intended that it will ever sit behind glass in Parliament no. House. No. That's not happening. <laughs> well, me, and, <laughs> me and Sammy have been talking about this for a long time. The Uluru Statement and the incredible, you know, the, the statement and the painting that the statement is on, um, that's going to go back to Murijulu, it's going to go back to Uluru because we take a lot of kids you know, school kids go to Canberra to see the, um, the, the governance of Australia, I suppose you can say. Well, why can't they go and see the governance of Aboriginal people in the heart of Australia? Thank you, Sally. And to you, <coughs> Megan, that question on why does the Uluru Statement matter and what will it give us as blackfellas but also the nation? Yeah, thanks, um, Kirsty. Um, I think Sally articulated it really well. Um, I accept that it will be her copyright. But um, <laughs> this, this idea about the whole cinema of Australia, Australia's history is really important. Um, look, it's, in, it's important because it's a, it's a radical... Well, not radical. I shouldn't use that language. 
but it is for some, for want of a better word, we've never tried this in Australia. We've never tried to constitutionally recognise our first peoples, um, and it is a change. It's going to be a change from the status quo, which is that in terms of our lives, uh, it is the government of the day, the executive that is in charge. It is Canberra bureaucrats that are in charge, and post ATSIC, um, we have very little say over our affairs except for um, non-constitutional ministerial hand-picked advisory bodies really across the Federation who are who are dictating the way in which Aboriginal policy and law um, is, is driven now. And, and a lot of them have skin in the game because they're reliant on, you know, state, territory and Commonwealth taxpayer funding. So, you know, what they say is absolutely going to be to kowtow to their political masters on this. And, you know, as mob, we don't blame them. But at the end of the day, most of our people aren't at that table. Um, and that's where the idea of the Uluru Statement came from, at least in terms of the structural reform, Thank was you. that we need to use the opportunity of constitutional recognition to, to force them to have us at the table, um, to compel the state to have us at the table. And we're not asking to bind... Parliament or override parliamentary sovereignty. The dialogues were very um, carefully constructed in a way that it had significant civics education about the way the Commonwealth works and the Federation works, including the institutions that already exist. People accepted that we couldn't overrule decisions, but we do want to be at the table. We want to, we want to compel them to have us at the table because we're not. We've just seen recently in the past few weeks Indigenous organisations, peak organisations left off vaccine task force. We've had the peak domestic violence, family violence, um, voices left off family violence, domestic violence committees, new Commonwealth committees. So there's, there's a lot of rhetoric post Uluru of the, of the Commonwealth listening to us, but it's, it's nothing could be further from the truth. So what's really important here, Kirsty, is we move towards a election where they're going to want to just legislate a voice and put it to bed and kill off Uluru, is that, as, as Sally said, we issued it to the, the Australian people. Um, we were asked 11 years ago, what is meaningful constitutional recognition? Our response is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And we invited the Australian people to walk with us and we issued the statement to the Australian people. It is written for you, as Sally said. And we need Australians to step up to the plate and help us, like they did in 67, but it's a bit harder this time because there's so much, you know, liberal democracy and the way in which parliaments function around the world has changed dramatically. And, and you know, Uluru is susceptible to retail Australian politics. So I suppose um, my answer is this is a, you know, the Uluru statement is so important. You know, that, that, that clip, Kirsty, every time I see it just brings me to tears because it was filmed straight off the rock. You know, Noel, Pat and I had just come straight away from the closing ceremony. And when I watch it, you just see, you know, all of the hope we had in, in the public institutions and the Australian people um, that, that, that we could change things for once, you know, we could make a difference for once. And Australians are stepping up to the plate. That's the really marvellous thing about this. I think Australians share with us the cynicism of politicians and politics and their capacity to do big nation-building things. So there's a real sisterhood and brotherhood or fellowship of Aussies on this matter, and I think that's why it's polled for four years, so telling us the polling that it will win a referendum. 
but politicians are, are really difficult to persuade, and especially in a, during a, a pandemic, we just had to come along in the middle of the Uluru <laughs> campaign. Um, and also, you know, as we head closer to an election, but we um, we chose to dialogue and not to consult. So we chose to speak with our people and have a a dialogue that would capture all of their views, and no one had done that until we the referendum council came along. And um, and when we think about parliament and a voice to parliament, parler, as we know, comes from the French word to talk. Um, parliaments were created post-Norman conquest in Britain. So when people talk about the British constitutional history, it's much deeper than that. And that, that parlay we take very seriously. We say constitutionalising the voice is about us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people having a dialogue with the Australian people via their representatives in the parliament, um, built into the constitution forevermore. And I think that normal ethic of talking to the First Nations about things that will impact upon their lives is a very logical and fair one. Good. Thank you very much, Megan. And um, we're going to flow in and out of um, questions. You've raised a couple of things that will come up a little bit later in the session. Um, but I just want to ask Sally why it was so important that the um, dialogues process that Megan referred to there was Aboriginal designed and led. Um, one of the most important steps of the dialogues and I'm thankful to Megan and Pat and Noel and the Referendum Council for doing it the way they did it, was that it was 60% of community voices. And, you know, at that stage, I wasn't on executive. I was working with my elders, as I have been forever. Um, and, you know, so I get these emails from Central Land Council saying, you have to come, you have to come. And I'm like, I don't know what this is about. I'm just at home, just working along. And they're like, you've got to come. And so um, Sammy was at Ross River, and so it was me and um, my Jamal, my grandfather, Craigie, who was there, and we were the only two Pidanjara people at the Ross River Dialogues, which were amazing. So Ross River's just outside of Alice Springs. Um, and while APY is in South Australia, we're still part of the Central Desert. So it was incredible to go along and be a part of that. And having 60% of just community people 40% of people from, you know, organisations meant that someone like me, a young woman, could be part of that process. Because constantly when there's a consultation period, it goes to the elders or it goes to men. Um, and so, you know, if you're a young person, you're going to be completely forgotten. If you're a woman, you're quite often completely forgotten. I mean, look at the way that APY was started up you know, the, the, our land rights, a lot of that conversation happened with men. So my female leaders started NPY Women's Council. So that was in response to that and saying, well, us women know what we're doing too. <laughs> um, and so for me, that was what was so amazing about the dialogues to sit there and at Ross River, Megan and her team, the referendum council team did an incredible job. They went out and they spent 
a whole week with interpreters going through the different nuances of the constitutional stuff, everything that were, they were presenting, and they did it in th the three languages that then was translated at Rose River. Three or four languages, I think it was Walpuri, Vidandara, Luricha, and Aranda. Um, and in all of that, and also, they did it over a weekend. So, recognising the fact that people had to be at their jobs, doing what they needed, or, you know, taking kids to school, over a weekend where everyone was there having a deep and meaningful conversation was what was incredible. And you got to think about when the refer and then, you know, the referendum council, yeah, everyone chose and voted for who they wanted to go on. I pushed and made sure that I also came to the Adelaide dialogue. <laughs> Like, yes, I am that pushy. And then I, <laughs> uh, you know, at Ross, and then at the Uluru, it was at Ross River West, you know, Craigie Ring Sammy and said, we have to have that meeting, that big meeting at Uluru has to be there. And this is a community that, you know, was the scapegoat of the Northern Territory intervention who said, yes, let's open it up, let's have everyone here. And the greatest thing about the Uluru Convention for me, from all those dialogues, was this was the first time I had ever seen a group of Aboriginal people in a huge number where we're having a real and deep and hard conversations about what we want for the hopes of our Australia. The only ever time I've seen that is a march, a parade, a long walk, or when Kevin Rudd said sorry, and you had those mass. Um, that's the only time. Mm. And I've not seen it in, and still haven't seen it in a way that everyone's coming together to have a real in-depth conversation. And so the way that they did the dialogues, if it wasn't for the way that the referendum council did it, I wouldn't be here. Mm. And of course, the national convention heard what everyone around the country had said in their respective dialogues. Yeah. And there wasn't absolute no. um, agreement about everything. There was difference from region to region. Region for, and I think that's a really interesting point because I think everyone thinks, oh, oh, black fellas think alike. Every Aboriginal person has to think alike. Um, and, you know, we all vote the same way. We all have the same religious beliefs, but it's like, why do we do that to minority groups? Why do we say that we can't have differing opinions? It's not like you all love Pauline Hanson. I, I, think, I think you're right. <laughs> hey, um, um, thank you for raising the relationship between um, the community at Murujulu and Uluru, because I, I want to lead into a question for Sammy. And um, there are a couple of little burning questions. And after, after the convention, there were a few suggestions or whisperings that the Ananu people were unhappy um, with the utilisation of the word Uluru in the name of the statement. Sammy, can you tell me if that is true um, and how your community feels about that? And also a little bit of story about the artwork that surrounds the words on what is the Uluru canvas. Painting when you took a banana, mono, naco, mumulaba, animal put a bit of a cup and pine when you all look in the books. Any more of a porta? Oh, Balinum, 
So when the um, Uluru statement um, was originally placed inside that painting that had the um, ancestral law stories relating to Uluru in it, um, there was some concern by some people who didn't realise what was happening and they were thinking that it was some kind of takeover, it was going to be misused, that it was other people um, taking over something that they didn't understand and it wasn't their right to do so. But we were able to explain that this was something that wasn't to do with Uluru's own law itself, but it was something much bigger and that if we were to, to be... Um, having these sorts of arguments, that would be the very thing that the government would love to see. And that so talking with each other and understanding the bigger picture of what was happening with the Uluru Statement um, allowed people to, to realise um, that it was a good thing to do. And so it's not like people were just um, upset and, and cranky and, and carrying on. It was a little bit of misunderstanding and then people settled down and realised um, the fuller story. So, brother, it was you that um, authorised the use of the name Uluru? Yeah, I am an Uluru. That is my family name. So it's important to talk about how it wasn't a takeover bid and nobody was trying to use Uluru um, without proper authority. It was about putting the name to that really important story, the statement that we wanted to be able to bring to the government so that we could work more closely together with the government and we weren't being mm -hmm. separate anymore. And that behind that um, desire to have an equal voice and a say was why it was um, important to be able to talk about the Uluru Statement as Uluru Statement. Thank you very much, Sammy and Cathy. I think we can put that little chestnut to bed. <laughs> Um, now, I was um, ridiculously optimistic when I said um, I'm going to ask all panellists all questions. <laughs> I'm going to have to be a little bit selective because would you believe we've only got 20 minutes left? Um, so I'm going to ask all of our panellists to be concise, punchy, but still poetic and gorgeous in their answers. Um, I might... Um, I want to um, just talk to Megan now and we all know that the Uluru Statement is on a journey, um, but not long after it was um, issued, um, all eyes were on the Australian government to ask what their response um, might be. And of course, we're still having government responses rolling. We've got a process of co-design that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But Megan, um, 
How did you feel after the then Australian government's immediate response to the Uluru Statement, especially the mischaracterisation of the voice aspect of it as a third chamber of parliament? Um, yeah, I suppose I'll be punchy too, Kirsty, because I know that was aimed at me because I tended to gibber on. Um, look, I think um, I think uh, we probably expected that response. When has the Australian government ever taken a really sensible idea from First Nations peoples and implemented it ever? Um, so um, I think we kind of expected that response. I think the hardest thing for me in that, though, was the young people. So big events like this can have a really negative downstream impact upon our people's faith and confidence and trust in Australia's public institutions to be in inclusive of them and to, to think that those institutions are fair. And so one of the hardest things about it being rejected a couple of months out of Uluru when um, the Prime Minister and his cabinet had barely read the report, in fact, we know that both hadn't, um, was 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 really you know it was very I, I was driving at the time I wrote about it in the quarterly essay with one of the young people who helped lead the dialogues and she just heard it on the radio and there was an interview between Patricia Gavales and Noel Pierce and he of course was unleashing he was furious and she just burst into tears and we had to pull over and so that's the first time I thought well this is what leadership looks like because I brought all these young people into the space and they expected the idea to be treated fairly, there'd been no public debate or discussion at all about the ideas. He got the chance to ventilate what a voice of parliament looks like to the Australian people and he rejected it. So I felt really sorry for those young people. I think for us, we um, we set about working really hard to lobby um, government to, to put it into a joint select parliamentary committee. Um, spend some time asking the Australian people and people who were at the dialogues about it. And that's what happened. It got put into a joint select committee about a month later. Um, a, a bit of activism from Liberal Party people in, in some blue ribbon seats in Sydney helped, um, which speaks to the kind of cross-section of support we do have. It, it was an unfair thing to do, um, including the mischaracterisation as a third chamber. Barnaby Joyce has obviously since then revoked and reneged that and apologised. Um, we know that he has a lot of very strong relationships with um, Aboriginal people in his own electorate, including, you know, um, some of the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. So he, he has apologised. Um, and, and fortunately, that's kind of not as prominent as it was, but that, that, that phrase is out there. After the Joint Select Committee, though, um, it, it, Julian Lisa from the Liberals and Patrick Dodson did their re review for a year. They found by talking to people at the dialogues, talking people to people at the national convention, um, and then of course talking to other Australians and other Aboriginal people, they found that it was the only viable form of constitutional recognition on the table, the voice of parliament, and they recommended that there be a two-stage process. They thought that you couldn't go to a referendum without more meat on the bones or what a voice meant. Australians need to know what, a, what does it mean. And then after that, the decision should be made about whether we move to constitutional enshrinement. Um, and they're acutely aware that constitutional recognition is the voice of Parliament. If you don't implement that, you, the rest of the Uluru Statement falls over. You don't. You can have agreement making 
or truth telling, however you want across the Federation, but it's not the implementation of the Uluru Statement. Mm -hmm. The voice to Parliament is the first part. If that's not in, in put in, um, you can't have a Makarata Commission either because that was granted to the Referendum Council and to the dialogues. Um, you, you can't do the rest. So what we saw then was um, Frydenberg um, in the budget before 2019, he put $160 million to the referendum. That money for the referendum on the voice is sitting there in the contingency reserve, $160 million to run a referendum on a voice. Frydenberg also put aside $7 million for the design process, which, Kirsty, you're going to talk to. Um, so the co-design process on a voice. And then the LNP party platform, if you look it up, Google it, um, it talks about the fact that they're going to do this process for an enshrined voice and then run that referendum once they know what it looks like. So both Labor and the Liberal Party, and, and, and it's conveniently ignored by mainstream media, have committed to, in their last election, um, the, the voice to parliament, the process, um, and then the contemplation of a referendum. Um, and that's, that's where we are. We're in various... Post that, you know, obviously Labor didn't win that election. They said that they would run a referendum in the first term. We are now coming up to an election managing vaccine politics, of course, and we have Labor saying they're committed to a constitutionally enshrined voice. And um, and the LNP, um, Morrison has always said he would stick to their party platform, which was design the voice, and then he's going to talk about or consult on what the form will be. Um, and that's that's really where we are. I think it's a fight, to be frank, to a public audience. I think the battleground now is to stop them legislating because um, they would like to legislate the voice and take the wind out of Uluru altogether because that's that's politics in Australia. Um, but this is a much bigger thing, as Sammy and Sally have alluded to. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is asking Australians to do much more than that and commit to much more than that. And that is doing something that no parliament prior to now has been able to do since the invasion, since first contact. Thank you very much, Megan. And um, the co-design process that um, Megan referred to uh, has concluded. There is a final report with the Australian government and I think a response is expected um, in the second half of this year. Um, and of the responses um, or the submissions to that process, I think there's been research and NIAA, um, the National Indigenous Australians Agency may have confirmed um, that a whopping 90% of responses received um, expressed express or in principle support for constitutional enshrinement of voice. And um, seems to me that um, you know the aspirations in the Uluru Statement um, are ideas whose time has not just come but are long overdue and we're hearing that come out in those sorts of processes. Um, just a little quick piece of history um, and I'll just see which of the panellists might answer this, but why is constitutional enshrinement of a voice to the Australian Parliament so important um, given the history that we've had to this date? Um, you may be familiar with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission and other bodies that have come and gone, but is there anyone on the panel who particularly wants to speak to that? Do you want to go, Megan? Well, I'll say something really quick. Kirsten's <laughs> like, no, don't put her up again. Um, I'll be as quick as a lawyer can be. No, in all, all seriousness, we've had multiple variations or iterations of a voice 
from the Commonwealth for three, four decades. They've all fallen over. And um, a number of them, and the ATSIC is the best example, has been because they're, they're statutory bodies um, that governments um, set up and then remove from one government to the next. So what it means is part of the disadvantage of closing the gap is try, trying to mitigate is the uncertainty in, in our affairs. Um, it is the case that um, we, we can't plan beyond the kind of three-year cycle because the upheaval is so huge from one government to the next. Um, and so one of the key things that the agency also confirmed, which the Indigenous Law Centre's qualitative and quantitative analysis of the submissions and consultation process confirmed was that a majority of the Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people in those conversations are saying they want it enshrined. And they want it enshrined because, because ATSIC um, was repealed overnight um, and all of that infrastructure was ripped away from communities and, and, and left just as uh, just a complete and utter hole in terms of um, people's resources and capacity to do things. And I, I think... It, the mainstream media has really fed quite successfully a very negative narrative about ATSIC, but when you go out to the dialogues and you actually talk to people on the ground, it did huge, incredible things in terms of, especially the regional councils, in terms of representing our people's voice and mobilising resources to where they need to go because there were people living on the ground among our people and they know best. So, um, so enshrinement is absolutely key here because whatever, if Ken comes up with a model... And they haven't really done a very comprehensive consultation process. Um, and if they go and legislate it, it will it will fall over. And we know that because the 600 years of British constitutionalism, legitimacy and trust in institutions, it comes from people being actively involved in the design. That's what Uluru did. But Ken's process is hand, he he handpicked people um, who are delivering what what he might want. It's not the kind of process that Uluru did, which was deliberative and actually let mob control. And so that's the key. Enshrinement is so utterly key here. Um, if you don't enshrine it in the constitution, there's two things. We're at the whim, we're a political football. We're at the whim of the government of the day. Mm -hmm. and, and, and our issues are always kicked around like a political football. And the second thing is the power of the constitution, Kirsty. So we know that state constitutions are ordinary acts of parliament, right? They are easily overridden from one parliament to the next. You don't need a referendum in the way you need the Commonwealth referendum to, to, to change the constitution. So that's why state-based treaties are vulnerable, right? The next parliament can override whatever's in a treaty. But at a Commonwealth level, if you want to change the constitution, you've got to go to the Australian people. And the thing about the High Court is the kind of independent referee and the thing about the constitution being the most important document is that it will compel government no matter who's in office, whether they've expressed racist views or progressive views, they must have First Nations people at the table on everything, bushfires, vaccination, COVID, you know, cashless welfare, you know, violence against women, you name it, all of these things that I've just mentioned, where we're not at the table, but they acutely impact us. So the issue is the force of law. It, it, it takes us out of politics and it compels them to have us at the table. I'll stop there, Kirsty, because I can see <laughs> Sally 
Thank you very much, um, Megan <laughs> and everyone. We've got about 10 minutes left, so I'm just gonna ask a couple more questions. I'm gonna go to support and a call for action. Um, but I also, John, and I meant to ask this question earlier on of our panelists, is there, um, um, do you have a favourite part of the Uluru Statement in terms of the words or the concepts that it is expressing? And I might go to Sally and then I'll go to Sammy. Uh, my signature? No. Um, <laughs> no, I think the when I look at the Uluru Statement and the statement itself, it's such a powerful statement that was, you know, everyone said... You know the the applause when Megan read it out at the at the conventional hall, and then out at Uluru was amazing. And I f for me, I really love it all. But that sentence of, you know, in 1967, you know, we were hurt, seen in 2017, we seek to be heard, and you know, we're inviting the Australian people to walk beside us. I think that's a powerful notion of. Because like, this was Aboriginal aspirations. It was ambitious. It was hopeful. And I think, you know, going back to what Megan's saying with the let, you know, having it enshrined, we shouldn't be afraid of Aboriginal ambition. And we get so afraid of that. We don't... We're constantly told, no, 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 you're going too fast. Slow down, slow down. Don't do that. Don't do this. You know, pigeonholing us back in it. And it's like, Why? We're not afraid of non-Indigenous ambitions, you know. It's Everyone can go far, but Aboriginal people can only go a certain space and then we're kicked backwards. And it's sort of like, this was so amazing in its entirety. It's ambitious, it's hopeful, it's... And it's also, it's not as hard to do. Like, it's, it's embracing everyone and saying, let's, let's walk together, because... We need everyone's help in that. And I think that, for me, is the best bit about it. It's the, the ambition and the aspiration, ambition from my elders, the aspirations from the youth, and saying, let's all to do it together. I think that's the best thing about that statement, but all of it all together. And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of the Uluru statement and those whole, that process of the closing ceremony which we forget about and which is also an incredible tools, which Sammy and Craig from the Murijula community organised was Artie Pat Anderson was given the a big pity, a big bowl. And for her, you know, when Sammy gave it to her, said, you're carrying everyone's hopes in this. You know, it's beautiful pity about this big. And then... <laughs> gave Megan the club, you know, the Jordinba, to say, this is for you, you've got to knock everyone's heads together. <laughs> and I think those two instruments of, of a very Pijanjara instruments were given so that, and it was given to the right people, <laughs> but it's saying we have to work together and I think that's the best thing about that statement. But it's, it goes, and there is a sequencing to it, it's voice, treaty, truth. Let's be at the table, let's reconcile this country, let's start talking properly on the different lenses of what Australia's truths are. It's not hand-picking and go, hmm, that truth comp component would look fantastic in our rap plan. No, 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 no. Go back to the voice, treaty, truth. Thank you very much, Sally.
And Sammy, is there um, a part of the Uluru Statement that really gets you in the heart, your favourite part? Okay, so I've done a lot of my um, education in English on tours, and that's also educating other non-Indigenous people about, about culture. And we don't have um, the most Western education with English, but we certainly have our own language and our own way of expressing things. So we mightn't think about writing something down the way that you've written the Uluru Statement, but we still have a written form that people can instantly look at and recognise as something to do with law and the authority of the people and, and the ancestors. And so that makes it really powerful that understanding that things can be read and expressed and understood in different languages, not just oral or written, but graphic as well. Because it's important that we recognise all of the different languages across this nation and that there's a way for all of us to have some one thing that, that we can all identify with. Kalia, thank you, Sammy. Now, I'm just going to ask everyone on the panel for one or two sentences in response to the final question. And I do <laughs> want to chuck, and I'm probably going to get lambasted afterwards by the team here, but just to ask, call for two or three questions. What can supporters of the Uluru Statement, both black and white, do to advance the statement today? I might go with you first, Megan. Anyway, once upon a time, no, it just takes, um, <laughs> there's like one thing, right? It's, it's so important. I can't impress if everybody in the room tonight could do this. It would mean so much. We really need people to write meaningful letters to your local MP. Um, that's so important. Um, that's really what we're falling back on now. It's not falling back. It's a really powerful thing to do. Um, it's, it's something that was very successful with the same-sex uh, marriage equality campaign. It's, it's very successful because of the old-school civic engagement. We need letters to your local MP saying that you, you think there should be a referendum, that the government shouldn't legislate a voice before there is a referendum. Um, and um, go to the ulleristatement.org website and we will have some arguments up there as to why that is the fact. Um, including that Ken's report that he will hand down soon is enough information to create a solid education base for Aussies to know what a voice is. Um, but at the end of the day, we're only in shining a power in the Constitution. We're not putting the bricks and mortar of a voice in. So that, that will be left to Parliament to, det to determine. But um, a letter to the MP is so important and even better if you love writing letters and really are really just 
so keen and excited to accept our invitation to walk with us. A letter to the Prime Minister as well, like a really meaningful letter to the Prime Minister. You know, we've seen some incredible letters where Aussies are talking about their history, their background, you know, where they came from, their families from overseas or just their role in, um, in as Australians, um, or whatever generation Australian they are, and just talking about why they think this is important. So th those two things are really the key things. They've been key in turning a lot of things around and, and now we really, really need your help. We're coming to that tail end of the campaign and what we desperately, desperately don't want. They legislate, the, the, everything falls over and we've mm. lost this opportunity. That's why we want Aussies to do it because we can do it together, right? That's, that's the most important thing about this is people power. So th those two things are really key. Thank you, Megan. And um, I'm going to ask Sammy for his um, number one thing that he would like Australians to do about the Uluru Statement. Can I just ask, if you have a question, if you can move to the microphone um, uh, while Sammy and then uh, Sally are speaking. Um, if there are no questions, that's fine too, um, because we've got lots of other places to go for information. But so, Sammy, your number one thing: what you want people to do about the Uluru Statement? Want people to um, keep up the dialogue, keep talking, so that we can be sure that message does reach the government. There's been too many times where we've done such a lot of work and tried to, to shift things. Um, and then it seems like it just falls on deaf ears. So it's about creating that link between all of us to keep this conversation going, to keep talking up, to keep talking to each other so that the true story of what we're talking about gets through to the government. It doesn't go in half um, baked and, and not understood but that more and more people understand exactly what it is we're talking about and that we can come together with that one strong story that goes all the way throughout our people right through to the government and is heard by all. Sometimes the younger government, we keep this funding to this place, more than the community cooperation along. We are. Money will only be along, but we are in. We want people understand that. Whatever the government thinks that it is doing in funding, the all too rea real thing is that that money doesn't reach us. So for a lot of people, it looks like the government's throwing money at different community things. I can tell you it stops short. It doesn't reach us. It's gobbled up by the people in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> is it okay to say that? <laughs> Uh, well, no, I... Sammy's hit that on the nail. Um, I think it's, it's as Megan said, it, the time is now. Um, and it's about all of your collective voices. And, you know, 
the, all the groups that you're a part of, get everyone involved, you know, it's, maybe we should be the new coronavirus and, you know, <laughs> spread this one at least instead of masking it, you know, spread that, the voices of everyone can move this. Because it's about a people power. You know, we elect all of these ministers and the prime minister, but we have forgotten our own voice. We are okay with government being the BS as they can be. Um, so, you know, we've forgotten to push hard on our agendas, you know, push hard on the environment, push hard on our rights for our marginalised communities. So we need to push hard. We need to go for it. You have that power. You know, you have the power when you vote, but ha you have this power, write a letter to any minister you can think of and say, because we have to put that pressure on. The time is now, the election's coming up. Don't let them use Aboriginal people as another election tick box, which then falls down once they're in. And that goes for both all parties. You know, it's, it's en enough is enough now. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. That's almost the last word from our panel. I believe we have a question just up the back and this might be our only question. Thank you. Oh. So um, please step up. Okay, thanks, guys. Um, I was just going to ask, is terra nullius still a key issue in this process and should that be legally challenged as part of the process uh, heading towards, you know, the historical truth telling and uh, towards treaty? Megan, I might let you <laughs> answer that one. Obviously, um, invoking yeah, the Marbo I mean, judgment. I think, I think it's always at the, the, the heart of everything. I mean, I think, you know, you've got to read the Uluru Statement and you've got to read the, the historical story that goes with it. The Uluru Statement is about 18 pages long, and so it includes an Aboriginal or First Nations version of Australian history, and you'll see in there, um, after invasion, the first part is about Terranolia. So absolutely it's about that. I mean, I think the key thing to make about treaty, because there's this kind of miss, there's this kind of, you know, um, popular push for treaty because it's always been there, is that after four decades, five decades of asking for treaty, um, and, and governments um, of all persuasion saying no, and it's all persuasion saying no, the opportunity on the table for us after 11 years, this is the second decade of constitutional recognition, is constitutional recognition. And so what the leaders have said in the dialogue process, like the mob out at Ross River and other places have said, um, Australia's federation is very different to those who've had first contact treaties like Canada, New Zealand and the US. We're a very different country with a very different history. And we're now saying to get to the agreement-making stage, the treaty that you assert, talk to, because there's not going to be one treaty, there's not going to be one pan-Aboriginal treaty that's negotiated. There's like over 200 that need to be negotiated, and many of them are already in the process of starting that work. Um, before you can do that, you need some structural power and some structural space carved out for yourself. Treaty can't give you that, not in 2021. So we're saying to get to agreement-making and get to truth-telling, because you can't do the truth-telling anymore um, without some kind of structural power, because all, all this country ever does is get close to substantive rights for our people and then say, oh, we're not going to do it, we're going to kick the can down the road mm -hmm. and put you in a truth-telling process. So we use truth 
then Australia is a way of avoiding rights. So we're saying we need a hook in the constitution to set up a space for ourselves as First Nations peoples. And from there, the other elements of our um, agenda can cascade. And, and that includes agreement making, which we know will help improve the relationship with First Nations people and the state um, and the territories and the local government. Um, and then truth-telling, which already happens across the continent in various ways, and we've had multiple national truth processes. But your question is a good one, but it's at the absolutely at the heart of all of it. We're saying that the government's not going to resolve this question of terra nullius aptly, right, properly. So we're going to do it as Australians, working with First Nations, that, that's, that's the purpose of the Uluru Statement, is to take the leadership here. And um, it's partially corrected by... Partially corrected by Mabo, but not sufficiently, right? Not, not enough people know what happened. Um, so that's where we are. We're saying, look, it's nice Canada's got treaties. It's nice New Zealand's got treaties. It's nice everybody does. And, yes, treaties are great, but... Um, you can't start them in this country when we are coming from a power, a position of powerlessness and voicelessness, and we have no leverage. So we're going to embed into these treaties across the Federation the power imbalance that exists now between us and the bureaucracy who Sammy referred to. Sammy nailed it on the head. We are not at the table, and the money is not getting to communities. It's going to intermediaries, other parties, and it's stopping with the bureaucrats. So um, the question is a good one, Kirsty, but it drives everything. It's all about terminals. Thank you. Now, we do have to skedaddle out of this room very shortly. I hope there is another gentleman just... If your question is very short and if it's possible to answer it in about <laughs> 10 seconds, we've got time. Uh, I'm in favour of voice, treaty and truth uh, and constitutional enshrinement, but I'm aware of other voices that are going to make that more difficult. Um, how do you answer the argument that to uh, mention... Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a distinct group is going to divide the nation rather than make us one united nation. Can I'm really that? happy to answer that. And, and <laughs> thank you. Very, very, very shortly. I've got anxious okay. wardens rubbing their hands together. So. Sorry, wardens. I'll be really quick. Look, the fact is, is we already we already set up different categories in the constitution. There's a racist bow that fits in there, right? The Constitution is imbued with racism and races. So it's not that we're saying, you know, continue that. We're saying we are a distinct cultural group. We predate the, the formation of the Australian nation by approximately 60,000 years, maybe more. What we're saying is connect the ancient jurisdictions of our people to contemporary Australian democracy. We're asking for an enhanced participation in Australian democracy and... Um, and it's a pretty fair ask, I would think, after what has happened to our people. Um, but, but I, and I take your point on equality and the rule of law, but those arguments don't stand up. I'd, be, I'd love to talk about it for the next hour. Um, but, but my first response to you, my first response to you is we already do. Australians haven't said much about the fact that we've, we've, Section 5126 has been in there for the whole entire existence of the Federation. So we do categorise people differently in the Constitution already. We already do. We already give Tasmania the same amount of rights as New South Wales, for example. We already do provide different um, uh, categorisations to different citizens across the continent, and, and this is no different. It's just we don't want to be recognised as race anymore. Race does not exist. Mm. We want to be recognised as First Nations peoples. But email me. I'd love to continue <laughs> the conversation.
So, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for. I'm, I suspect we could go on for a couple of hours, really. Um, oh, can you please Laura. thank our magnificent panel of Professor Megan Davis, Sammy Wilson and <laughs> Sally Scales? Now, Sammy's got something about the mask. <laughs> He's saying put Uluru's statement on the front of your masks. <laughs> now, just before we go, I suspect there is a bit of support in this room for the Uluru statement. We could start a voice treaty truth wave just for a sec if you felt like it. I don't oh, know. you just want to capture it. That's well, why. Well, I've got my video at the ready. So, <laughs> Sally, do you want to start us off? No, you. <laughs> Look, I'm completely agnostic about the Uluru Statement. Not. Um, so, can I have a voice treaty truth, Go please? John. Voice oh. treaty <laughs> truth. Again. There we go. Maybe a bit louder. <laughs> Thank you all.